Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon. On the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of The Unreasonable Elder Bednar. I am joined once again by my good friend and fellow podcaster, Carrie Schertz, a.k.a. The Backyard Professor, in analyzing, deconstructing, and ultimately disassembling Elder Bednar's most recent talk, That Ye May Believe. Elder Bednar gave his talk in two parts. We are following suit by giving our analysis in two parts. I had a great time going over part one of Elder Bednar's talk with the Backyard Professor, and I had a wonderful time going over part two, which you will be hearing presently. I hope you enjoy the show. Play the tape. Good evening from the broadcast studio of the Backyard Professor. Now you know why I don't open that way, right? All right, look. Radio Free Mormon, how are you, my friend? We are going to rock this joint tonight. I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing, Professor? I am doing very well. I have had a fantastic week. I got to interview James D. Tabor, biblical scholar and archaeologist, and he was a hoot and a holler, man. He's a fun guy. I'm going to be using a lot of his stuff on my New Testament commentary series. Those aren't as popular as your Mormonism Live or else the uh, short response BYP responds. But hey, it's it gives them a variety of everything. So woohoo! It's been a good. I'm week. really impressed. I'm really impressed with the number of quality scholars that you're able to interview on your show recently. Well, thank you, especially tonight. Absolutely. I go for nothing but the best. <laughs> no, and to top it all off, we've got Elder Bednar tonight. We do. We have Elder Bednar. Hey, we better get this show started properly so the Spirit can come in and uh, bless us. So we we are going to get going here. Let's boogie till we puke. Woohoo! Okay, here we are. We are going to do an honorarium on our beloved Elder David A. Bednar because he is such a magnificent man to lead and guide us into the spiritual life. Is this not correct, Radio Free Mormon? I ask you. Absolutely. He's a senior apostle now. By the way, about your new opening, I love that new opening. I just keep waiting for the part where you steal the golden idol and the big rock ball comes rolling after you <laughs> i well i'm an indiana backyard professor jones sort of <laughs> I'll that's have fantastic to, I'll have i love that opening movie clip of me doing something like that <laughs> i actually got a brief power nap during it too so that was good awesome good yeah i only made it for one minute so this is <laughs> <laughs> it only seems like half an hour yeah, I was I was thinking of doing a half. <laughs> okay, hello everybody in the audience. Welcome here, yeah, baby. It is backyard professor show time with the indefatigable, incomparable radio free Mormon. Incompatible. What? Hey, and hey. incompatible. No, 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 no. You're the brother in arms. Hey, uh, you have got two ex wives to prove it. 
<laughs> oh boy, how do I refute that? Damn. Hey, you need to stand up and show off that t-shirt. You've got a special t-shirt on. Come on. I have to be careful though, because I'm wearing no pants. Simba. So, okay, so be very careful here. <laughs> now here it is. Okay, I gotta do it this way. Here we go. So this is everybody. Okay, over here. I think everybody can know who this is, right? Yep. And here's the here's his adamantium claws, in which you see the reflection of his opponent, the person who's coming at him, who's big and green and hates everything to do with Christmas. Very good, very good. Quite a T-shirt. Me, I have this magnificent, boring sort of brown, white striped thing. You know, it looks like okay. I wore to school back in seventh grade. What you have on? Yeah. I don't know. It was the early 70s. It's okay. It's, it's passable. You're right. You're right. I do look like I'm in the 70s. I'm going to have to come up to snuff, man. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hey, uh, we have a lot of material to cover, and it's actually a fascinating subject. And it's a lot of fun to go through because it's going to give us a good overview of the stuck record that Mormonism seems to be on, at least in the leadership position. W would I be misleading in saying that's my impression of all of this? Well, I don't think so. I think it agrees at least with my impression. So here we have Elder Bednar, who's giving this huge, massive, very important talk. Now you can tell that he thinks it's important by the way in which he presents it. And he presents it in two parts. The first part was given early fall of last year. Could have been late summer, heck if I know. It was a few months ago. And he gives it at BYU. And he announces that this is just part one. And part two will be given at another location later this year. And sure enough, he shows up at BYU, Idaho and uh, gives part two. We've already done a podcast analyzing part one. And we promised as well, like unto Elder Bednar, that we would show up later on with a part two. And lo and behold, here it is. <laughs> so can I tell you my basic overview of this whole thing? I mean, my massive talk, it's broken broken into two parts. I've been living with this talk in a way for quite a while now. And it actually takes some living with it and thinking about it and analyzing it in order to figure out what the heck Elder Bednar is even doing with this talk. So here's the basic thing, all right? The basic thing is this. He's going to talk about 10 things about Mormonism, whether it's new scripture, prophets, apostles, priesthood temples, ordinances, it's all the same old primary stuff that we have heard since we were kids in the church. There is nothing different about it. And all he's going to do is present all 10 of these, five in the first part, five in the second part. We're going to do the second five in the second part tonight. All he's doing is saying, I want you to pray about these, and the Holy Ghost is going to tell you that these things are true. So that's it. That's the foundation of this talk. And it takes a while to figure that out because he's got other stuff that's stacked on top of it in order to try and make it look like it's not just this basic talk, this basic primary talk. The first thing he does in part one, and I refer you back to part one if you want to talk about that or go into it, audience members, is he wants to try and play like he's giving a rational, reasoned argument based on evidence. And he even quotes Austin Farrar. Remember about that? We, we talked about oh, yeah. reasonable argument doesn't create religious belief, but it can help sustain it when it's under attack. He presents everything as, it, as if he's going to give 
a reasoned argument with evidence. And that is the last thing that he does. He never, ever gets around to that in reality. And that's why it's so strange at the very end of this talk for him to go back to Holy Ghost and pray about it. And you'll know that these things are true. But what he does do is at the beginning, let me go to my script here. I should say my notes and make sure that I'm getting everything. Remember, we are without person script tonight. So those are notes, not script. <laughs> right. Or script, as the King James Version would have it. This is, <laughs> this is why he says, seeing something isn't the only way to know it is true. Remember that from the first part? He's trying to clear the field to have personal spiritual feelings. Be on a par with seeing something. It is knowledge. Remember, he said that in part one as well. Yes, so this is why he's laying the groundwork in part one in order to do what it is he's actually doing as opposed to what he's presenting as doing. And at the end of this talk, he will say that knowledge, that this knowledge, this knowledge coming from spiritual feelings is actually greater than just seeing something. In fact, there's no knowledge greater than feeling that something is true, if that something you're feeling is true, is Mormonism. But he also tries to add that Joseph Smith is coming up with ideas that are not in his environment. And at the beginning of each one of these 12 ideas, he'll have a brief snippet about how many people, other people, other religions in Joseph Smith's day believed this kind of thing that Joseph Smith is going to come forward with and he's going to do it in a way to try and distinguish it and show that Joseph Smith was not influenced by the religious ideas, the false religious ideas of his day. That's another of his points that he will keep coming back to. And that's why he starts each section with a little synopsis of that. We'll continue to see that play out tonight. But time and time again, Elder Bednar has to hedge and say that lots of people believed something different, leaving the door open to others believing what it was that Joseph Smith restored. In other words, he can't say that nobody on the earth believed the same kind of thing that Joseph Smith restored. He can only say a lot of people believe something different. So it's not completely sui generis what Joseph Smith comes up with. The so, bottom line, so, yeah, so go ahead. It appears to me like he's trying to develop a comparison contrast approach. He is. He's trying to develop that, but it's solely for the purpose of trying to demonstrate that Joseph Smith was not influenced by the false religious traditions of his day. In fact, that's a, a statement he'll keep coming back to. Mm -hmm. He's not able to prove that, unfortunately. So it would be better if he had left that out completely. Yep. And as I said in part one, I want to say again, even if Elder Bednar were able to show that nobody in the world believed these 10 ideas that Joseph Smith came up with, and Joseph Smith actually came up with them for the very first time, that doesn't move the truth meter on whether what he restored was actually from God. You know what there I'm saying here, Terry? What's that? You know what I'm You understand what I'm saying here? I, oh, absolutely. I yeah. feel like Cardinalis. You hear what I'm saying? Can you hear me now? Well, I'm already yeah. half deaf, so you've got a fabulous mic, so we're good. <laughs> well, that's good. So the bottom line is that this adds nothing to his talk. Because even if Joseph Smith had been a complete, absolute innovator and nobody in the history of the world had come up with these ideas, it doesn't make it true. It doesn't even move the needle on the truth scale. Yes. So all this talk of Elder Bednar amounts to, even with the framing and the bells and the whistles, is a talk setting forth 10 aspects of current Mormon doctrine 
and asking the audience to get a spiritual confirmation that they are true. By the way, he also wants to throw in this idea, how could the prophets have guessed so many things that were right? In part one, he goes to the story of Samuel the Lamanite and pulls that line out of the Book of Mormon as to the people who still don't believe, just saying, oh, they guessed a lot of things that were right. Anybody could guess things that are right. It's just a coincidence. And what he's trying to do is imply that modern prophets have also gotten things right. But he never says any examples of that. No. Probably because they're hard to come by. Yeah. 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 I, I noticed that defect, too, is his is his uh, it always goes back to Joseph Smith and his time because he is the pristine restorer, as it were. And therefore, we're on the right track. But there's really nothing that shows a continuation through time after Joseph Smith was out of this picture. And today's church leadership is absolutely not on par level with the leadership in Joseph Smith's day, at least from my vantage point. And we will we will see that tonight. So, yeah, very good. Yeah. Right. And it's dur- it is during his intermission. Remember, these are famous for having the intermissions. Part one <laughs> has know. an intermission. Where I know. He keeps talking. Part two has an intermission where he keeps talking. This is not what an intermission is, Elder Bednar. An, an intermission is supposed to be a break from hearing you talk, not a continuation <laughs> of hearing you talk during the intermission where nobody gets to stand up or go anywhere or get popcorn. Hey, the good thing, the good news is I saw Gail Capson has brought cookies. So we get cookies through the computer screen. Thank you, Gail, baby. So well, I'm, there is I'm glad to hear that. That's wonderful. I'm looking forward to those. Maybe we can have those during the, um, the intermission. But finally, he repeats his main theme, right? Which I think is something that he seems quite proud of that he's come up with. I'm not sure that pride is well-placed, but here's the theme. My primary theme, this is Elder Bednar speaking, my primary theme is quite straightforward, namely that it is unreasonable to claim that faith in Jesus Christ is unreasonable and that the basic arguments used by our contemporary critics have not changed much since the days of the Book of Mormon prophets. Well, I don't remember any Book of Mormon prophet wondering why it was that Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks told the entire world that the apostles have never hidden anything from anybody and compare it with the sad and strange tale of the suppression of the 1832 account of the first vision. I don't think that's in the Book of Mormon. So maybe the arguments have changed a little bit over time, but Elder Bednar does not want to go there. So he's going to keep it loose. He's going to keep it easy for him to respond to, at least so he thinks. And then he's ready to go on with um, the very first, or I should say number six, the very first of his last yeah. five points. In his second part, he did renumber them one to five. I've gone ahead and labeled them six to ten. So there is that discrepancy. I apologize for the inconvenience with which my incompetence might dull this presentation. However, I will get over it. You're what's making this presentation happen, baby. Oh, whatever. <laughs> you You're are. And so he- the reason they're here to watch. Yeah, baby. <laughs> no, no, no. It's my t-shirt. So tonight we will consider, he says, tonight we'll consider five additional truths. Now, in synopsis, do you have that in front of you, by the way, Professor, where he starts at the University of Utah, right before he gets to priesthood authority and keys, 
where he says at the University of Utah, I discussed. Do you have that? If not, I'm going to read it. But if you have it, I, I want don't you to read think it. that's one of the clips I copied. I've got. Several. Oh, no, no. I just meant to read it. So what he says is at the University of Utah, I discussed. Oh, it's University of Utah. It wasn't BYU. Utah, that's right. Well, there you go. The University See, he is getting to the heathen apostate parts of the Mormon church. So he is doing his apostolic duty properly. Well, I think it was at the seminary building. So, eh. Tonight, he says at the University of Utah, I discussed five doctrinal truths. One, the nature and character of the Godhead. Two, Heavenly Father's plan of salvation. Three, the importance of mortality and a physical body. Four, the creation of the earth and the fall of Adam. And even five, the atonement of Jesus Christ. And if that wasn't exciting enough for you, he goes on. Tonight, we will consider five additional doctrinal truths. One, priesthood authority and keys. Two, prophets, apostles, and revelation. Three, additional Latter-day Scripture. Four, covenants and ordinances. And five, temple covenants and ordinances. And vicarious work for the dead. And then he says, right before he begins with number six, I invite you to draw your own conclusions about whether seeing is the best and only way of knowing what we know. Joseph Smith was influenced by false traditions, right? Believers have frenzied and deranged minds. Ooh. Prophets merely guessed right. And the restoration of the Savior's gospel and church is unreasonable. Because really, that's what he's after. He's not really after faith in Jesus Christ being unreasonable. What right. he's really after is belief in the LDS church being true is unreasonable. That's what he's after. Yeah. I think so. And again, once again, it is this, it is this subtlety, so they think, of deflection of what they're really hoping to accomplish. Why, I mean, his entire talk truly could have been given in about three minutes, but he has to fill it with fluff because he's there to entertain the boys and girls as he calls them. And so he has to fill it in with something. And that's why his intermissions are so effective because it's just more BS of the same, except a little bit different to keep him, you know, entertained. So yeah, good point. Yeah. Now, do we want to, uh, do we want to look at the, the slide or the clips? Are you How about the slide first and then the clip? Cause I know you went to a lot of work to make a slide for each well, of these five truths. Yeah. By the well, way, he also poisons the waterhole by calling each of these doctrinal truths at the outset, so you can understand what your response is supposed to be to them. Oh, right. He loads the dice, doesn't he? That's a great way to put it. That's a fantastic way to put it. Yeah, this is why I call it the sixth doctrinal truth. He he is discussing the priesthood authority and keys. Now, see, from my take on this, this has always been a... Uh, more of an emotionally laden approach when you're talking about priesthood authority and keys. You must have these keys, the laying on of hands by authority. They always emphasize authority. Original church apostatized. The keys are restored from Peter, James, John, John the Baptist. Oh, I didn't correct that. I thought I corrected that. John the Baptists, we've gone plural today, and Elijah in the Kirtland Temple. So in the bottom, I thought we were going to talk about the Melchizedek priesthood restored here. We don't have to, but... Uh, we may have had. Yeah, well, the fantastically interesting thing. Now, th this is what just blows me away. I really never heard any of this while I was an apologist 
is that not astonishing? Church history wasn't my strong point because I was off in La La Land with the Book of Abraham and the facsimiles and all that jazz, the papyri. And so this was somewhat of a surprise when Palmer, was it Palmer? Yeah, in his book, the CES director came out and talked about this idea that nobody around Joseph Smith had ever even heard of this Melchizedek priesthood ordination by Peter, James, and John, and angels ministering and all that. McClellan, uh, William McClellan said, my gosh, David Whitmer never heard of that. I never heard of this. What's going on? It wasn't until, and you can correct me if I'm misstating this, wasn't it until 1838 that they no. found out about that? That's no, actually, it was, uh, it was earlier than that, Carrie, because it was uh, around 1834. What we know is that in the 1833 Book of Commandments, the revelation that came to be section 27 in our Doctrine and Covenants has no mention of Peter, James, and John, but when it was reproduced in 1835 as the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, all of a sudden a large swath had been added containing okay. Peter, James, and John. So it's apparently sometime between 33 and 35, 34 is an easy date, though we have to ballpark it a little bit, but not as late as 1838. No, so it probably actually happened. Okay, thank you, because McClellan also does notice that also, is he says, what in the tarnation is going on with Joseph Smith adding to the revelations that he already gave, and then he crosses out stuff, and then all of a sudden he receives another revelation that clarifies some of the stuff he had in before, and now this revision contradicts a later revelation that he had, and so he goes to that revelation and changes it, and now these two revelations are contradicting that earlier revelation, what in the Sam Hill of Peeville is going on here? And William McClellan said, it's all bunk. He, he just couldn't follow Joseph Smith's reasoning at all. So, Yeah, I think it's called, I think it's textbook gaslighting. And some people yeah. will fall for it, even if they're living through it. But apparently McClellan and David Whitmer were not two of those who were willing to go along with it. Right, right. Yeah, and, and McClellan specifically mentions that in his uh, journal. He, he said uh, they're just none. Okay, okay. So, that yeah, that's interesting that it happened in 1834-35, just about the time the papyri got to the church. So, yeah, and then he had the Kirtland fiasco, and it was in the 1838 revision of his history and his first vision, etc., that he was trying to pump up the authority of his Profit status, if I understand yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So do you have that first clip from our friend, Elder Bednar? I do. <laughs> okay, let's take a look at this. Here we go. Can you tell I'm going to get excited about this? Here we go. The first doctrinal truth upon which we will focus is the role and importance of priesthood authority and keys. Low church Protestants with whom Joseph Smith would have been familiar before the first vision largely argued for a priesthood of all believers. For example, Methodist preachers or pastors in Joseph's day were typically not ordained, but often were licensed laymen. 
Likewise, Baptist pastors were not ordained, but also licensed instead. Thus, any man in Joseph's day who had faith in the Bible was a priest or an apostle, as the Bible was believed to be the ultimate source of spiritual authority. As somewhat of an exception in Joseph's day to a non-ordained priesthood of all believers, clergy in Presbyterian churches performed ordinations by the laying on of hands. Because Joseph had a mother and several siblings who had joined the Presbyterian church, young Joseph would have been familiar with that church's dual approach to the priesthood of ordaining some by the laying on of hands and having others serve under the priesthood of all believers. And there you have it. How do you refute that, RFM? How do I refute it? Well, I don't refute it. Rather, I embrace it and I say that what Elder Bednar is purporting to do is trying to show that Joseph Smith's priesthood was very different from the ideas of priesthood of those in his environment. But what I have to note is that the way that Elder Bednar has described priesthood seems to match almost exactly the role of priesthood as we see it in Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon. Oh. There is no ordinations going on as far as giving people the priesthood. The priesthood appears in people as if it is a natural thing. Alma the Younger is a classic example. Is it the younger? No, I think it's the older. It's the older. He's one of the priests of Noah, right? And the, the old chestnut in the Book of Mormon is where does he get the priesthood authority in order to baptize people after he splits the scene right before Abinadi gets whacked and goes out there and is uh, creating that church in the wilderness? And how is he baptizing Helam and all these other people without the priesthood? Well, the Book of Mormon says nothing about any priesthood authority being necessary to do that, but it's just sort of assumed that he has it. So this looks a lot more like a priesthood of believers the way that Elder Bednar has described it, then it does this idea of it's got to be restored from heaven. And then once it's restored from heaven, it's got to be handed along by the laying on of hands from somebody who has it to somebody who doesn't. Your thoughts? Well, uh, what comes to mind too, and this is my old former apologetic self, is this reminds me of when Hugh Nibley electrified his class. I had it on tape years ago while I was doing my woodwork art. He was mentioning that the baptism of Alma is not the Christian baptism. It was the old Jewish. Now, this is nibbly apologetic. It was the mm -hmm. old Jewish baptism. The reason he brought that in is because there is no baptism in Alma of in the name of the Father and in of the Son and the name of, and in the name of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Be be washed from your sins and then baptized. There's none of that in the Book of Mormon either, which is extremely interesting. Hmm. Okay. I, and, think and I think the Alma section. Yep. Yes. Okay. Yeah. By the way, what he talked about was this believers of priesthood, but there, as sort of an exception, he says to it, and I want to get to what it is he said. He says, as somewhat of an exception in Joseph's day to a non-ordained priesthood of all believers, clergy and Presbyterian churches performed ordinations by the laying on of hands. So in other words, you have the priesthood by believing, but there's an ordination to certain priesthood offices, okay? That's what's talked about there, I believe, and that's what we see in the Book of Mormon, at least by the time 
we get to the end of the Book of Mormon in Moroni chapter 3, because this appears to be the only place that I can find where this is talked about. And this is where it says the manner which the disciples who were called the elders of the church ordained priests and teachers. That's all we have in the Book of Mormon as a general rule are priests and teachers. And then maybe some elders are referred to here. And then right. it talks about in the, uh, the way to do it. They lay their hands upon them and then they ordain you to be a priest. Or if you be a teacher, I ordain you to be a teacher. Nothing about priesthood, but what we would call priesthood office today. Right. In order to what? To preach repentance and remission of sins. That's what they did. So that is about as close as you can get to any kind of ordination in the Book of Mormon. It doesn't seem to happen in the actual context of the Book of Mormon. In other words, in the narrative of the Book of Mormon. But when right. you get to the end of the Book of Mormon, and now we all of a sudden, the author who is put forward as being the last person alive among the Nephites, and he's going to write a few more things in the Book of Mormon, right? All of a sudden now, Moroni seems to be interested in laying the, the groundwork for establishing a church, which is a strange thing for him to be in, interested in at this point in his life, since everybody else is dead except the Lamanites who are trying to kill him. So he's trying to set the foundation for the organization of a church at the end of his life, at least within the context of the Book of Mormon. Or if Joseph Smith is writing it, now all of a sudden he is introducing the, these ideas at the end of the Book of Mormon. All yeah. I'm saying is that while Elder Bednar is trying to distinguish Mormonism from what was happening in Joseph Smith's milieu, that what he's actually doing is showing that Joseph Smith's milieu regarding the priesthood matches a lot more the Book of Mormon than it does the later developments of priesthood that Joseph Smith came up with after the church was organized. Hey, may I uh, may I read a selection from our dear friend Charles Harrell? Yeah, here, please. In in the book, this is my doctrine, uh, and I'm going to have Charlie Her Harrell back on the show. I've had him once, and we'll do some more. This is on page 307 under the Melchizedek priesthood ordination and all that jazz. He says, and just a sentence, just so that we get the context here. There is no mention that ordination to the priesthood itself was essential for obtaining exaltation in the Bible, in the Book of Mormon, in the Pearl of Great Price, or in the Doctrine and Covenants prior to the September 1832 revelation in section 84. Now, I... I <laughs> I've been thinking about that, trying to look into that. And son of a gun, he's right. So it really wasn't a big deal at all throughout the whole vast concourse of time until 1832. That's one of those things that make you go, hmm. Yeah. Yes. Great addition. I will also say the obvious, which is that Mormonism has long looked like a combination of congregationalism and Catholicism as it regards the priesthood. Because if you got congregationalism, you have this idea more of a lay ministry, this idea of the priesthood of believers. But Catholicism, of course, you have to have the direct laying on of hands, or at least the direct imposition or interposition, a person who has the priesthood to another person to give them the priesthood. That priesthood power has to be controlled because it's the presiding authority in the church. And you can't have somebody coming out from left field saying, hey, I got the priesthood of believers. That means I've got the authority to preside in the church. That means I can do what I want with the church. No, that's not going to work. 
that's not going to work. So we've got to get rid of that. And we have to make sure that we can control it from the top down. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be the pyramid. Yeah. We know who's at the top of that pyramid. No kidding. Right. Did you want to say anything about priesthood? Well, I let me take another quick gander in Charlie Harold because I had a couple of items that I, I wanted to no, not that one. Probably Looks not. like that book is bristling with bookmarks. Oh, this book has been one of my favorite go-tos for for a decade. I I strongly recommend everybody get this book. No, I think that I think it's uh oh, well, he says on page 79. The Book of Mormon says nothing regarding the restoration of priesthood authority or its importance in the latter-day work of the Lord. The first recorded reference to restorations is the John the Baptist and Peter, James, and John was, you're right, it wasn't until 1834 that all this stuff started coming down, five years after those events reported. So again, he's just, he's emphasizing, and I'll stop at that, he's emphasizing that this idea um, well, I mean, this is a restoration. So now to put my apologetic hat on for a moment with your FM, as an apologist, I would say, well, of course you nitwits. It wasn't, it wasn't talked about because this is a line upon line, precept by precept addition as Joseph Smith receives the revelations. But my response as now a critic is, well, of course you nitwit. However, we should see that type of development in the other scriptures also, shouldn't we? If it mm. was had, why is it not there? And then the idea of the Bible, well, it was taken out of the Bible. It's Isn't it fascinating how Joseph Smith built in uh all the answers, the options to give the answers, when he introduced, and boy, did he introduce all kinds of doctrinal innovations and historical infelicities, he could just say, well, it was taken out, and now I'm bringing it back. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, and I think that, you know, this whole idea about line upon line, precept upon precept, we know it's from the, what was it, the Carolyn Pearson song. No, seriously, it's from Isaiah. (laughs) And that is is a mistranslation of the Hebrew, according to Kevin Barney. I've covered that just recently in a video uh, or a live session a couple times ago with uh, someone or other. Maybe I did it myself, but... Yeah, that's... The thing that occurs to me is that, yeah, we can understand if we're teaching somebody who's like a kid, you know, and we know more than they do, like God should know more than us, that we're going to teach them line upon line and precept upon precept. We get that. But I think the danger of that and what we have to be careful with is that a person who's making stuff up as they go along, it's going to look really similar to line upon line and precept upon precept. It sure is. That's why he introduced that concept. So that, I think that's where we have to be very careful because adding new stuff and continuing to add new stuff and continuing to add new stuff, especially when it's not reflected in the earlier stuff and sometimes even contradicted by the earlier stuff, we have to be careful because line upon line and precept upon precept can cover a multitude of sins. Oh, boy. I, it, well, it covers them all. 
when you really stop and think about it, that is the get out of jail free card for any innovation introduced even up to today. And now we're embracing it because President Nelson has come out of the closet and said, hey, this is an ongoing restoration. Yeah. Katie bar the door. Nothing is held back. We can change anything we want because this restoration is ongoing. I've got the keys and I can make the rules. And yeah. if we're changing things now, now, if we're changing things, that shows it's true. Okay? Yes, and, and they're very significant, earth-shaking, soul-shattering changes, too. Oh, yes, they are. I've been overawed by many of them. Fundamentally, on basis. the entire world, because he is the prophet to the whole world. Three hours church to two hours church. And the most recent revelation is we're going to start having that prayer at the beginning of the second hour. That's crucial. Yes. You ready to go to number two? So ready. Or should I say seven? <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're we're trying to designate Star Wars movies here. Right. I'm sorry. The first Star Wars movie for me is always going to be Star Wars. It okay, is. In 1977. You can call it four all you want. I'm not going there. It's number one. <laughs> number one. That's the way it works. So this seventh doctrinal truth, and I deliberately chose this picture of the apostles and first presidency in their temple clothing to show us how glorious and fun heaven's going to be on our eyeballs, nothing but white, is that the prophets, apostles, revelation, God speaks today by ongoing revelation, all the knowledge, the keys, the ordinances from previous dispensations are now here on earth in the fullness of times, and there is more to come. And the idea that we must come to grips with is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints fulfills prophecy and will fill the earth. And they love to point to the DNC more than the Bible on that, which is really, honestly, just weird. Don't you think, RFM? <laughs> hmm. Well, can you explain that a little bit more? Because actually, I wasn't paying attention to what you were saying. I was looking at my notes. I apologize. You caught me. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Bingo. Right on, baby. Yeah. I. Uh, now you're catching me on the hot spot. I think it was Bednar himself. I will have to double check this, but um, I've been looking through so many selections to prepare for this tonight. Um there was a discussion of the prophecies of Joseph Smith in the Doctrine and Covenants that he was talking. What Joseph was doing was rewording, reapplying the uh, prophecy of Daniel, but rather than go to that, the leader was going to the Doctrine and Covenants, saying the church is fulfilling prophecy, utilizing the Doctrine and Covenants and not the biblical text. That's why I said what I said. So, And of course, we now know truly because of the legitimate biblical scholarship, and I'm getting this from the biblical scholars, uh, that the book of Daniel fundamentally is truly a pseudepigrapha. Daniel did not write that book. Uh, it is not an ancient book dating back to six to 500 BC at all. We know that it belongs and it originated in the same era where the various books of Enoch began to rise in Hellenistic Judaism about 200 to 180 BC. 
That's mm -hmm. pretty fundamental at this point. There's just some inconvenient truths, Elder Packer, that we all have to begin to accept. So, doggone it. I'm sorry. Did, are we talking about Elder Packer tonight? No, he, I'm just using him because he said some truths are not very useful. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. <laughs> so I'm just letting him know you got that one right, but that gives you no right to sweep him under the rug. So, Right. Yeah. Actually, it's the truths that are inconvenient that should be the most loudly spoken, I think. Well, when you consider the most famous prophecy of all of Daniel, the kingdom of God, the this rough stone rolling down the hill to fill the mountain to down the mountain to fill the whole earth and all that. When you consider that it is an entirely pseudepigraphic, Daniel may not have even existed. It's certainly not a prophecy of the future. He's talking about his contemporary scene. He's writing as if he is looking from. 500 BC, but we know by the stylistic considerations, the comparison of metaphors, there's all kinds of ways we can test when documents were written, when you consider it was extremely late, and when you consider that it just doesn't match any of the other scriptures, and when you really see that he's looking in his contemporary world it's not a prophecy. It's just a discussion of somebody who wants to get his point across. When you consider the entire prophetic apparatus and basis of Mormonism being the true church and filling the earth is based on a phony document, that's a pretty inconvenient truth. Hmm. Yeah, I think the author is probably very excited about the fact that the Maccabean revolt had been successful in casting off the the rule of the Greeks and expecting yes. this to last forever and be extended. So that gets written. Of course, it doesn't end up happening. Unfortunately, the Romans come along and resubjugate the Jews. But, but the Jews did get their independence for that short time. And that's what gave them that jubilation. True. Right. Exactly. And what gave them the very reasonable, well, at least the plausible belief under the Romans that they could do it again. So we have all these messiahs coming forward and saying, let's get together and let's throw them off because God will back us the way he did against the Greeks a couple hundred years ago with the Maccabees. Yep. And it didn't work. <laughs> no, no. And they tried and they tried and they tried and they got crushed harder and harder and harder until finally they ended up with the, the temple yep. destroyed and the diaspora. Yep. Okay. So, Let's finish that little line there and just say the problem is, is that Joseph Smith then took that revelation or that prophecy in Daniel, applied it to the church and put it in the doctrine and covenants. Yes. That's the problem is that it's in LDS scripture that the church will continue to grow like the stone cut out of the mountain without hands until it breaks down all the other kingdoms. And these are sort of political kingdoms, of course, in the prophecy and they're political kingdoms in Joseph Smith's mind, but until it fills the whole earth. And that was uh, very much talked about in the 70s and the 60s and the 80s and so on. But now you don't hear that much about it anymore because the growth is going like this and then flattening. And now it's starting to go down. We're starting well, to lose members. Yeah, the stone rolled so much that it's been losing its size also. Friction has been wearing it down, and instead of filling the earth, it's beginning to shrink as properly does in real physics. Yeah, we didn't know it was. It wasn't a stone. It was actually a big snowball. 
there you go. Yep. That got dirty. So it looked like a stone. Right. Know? And so Elder Bednar is going to still say the same thing in this talk. He's going to say it's continuing to grow. It's going to grow until it fills the whole earth. But this is why they have to monkey with all the numbers and they have to hide the actual numbers of people who are active in church. This is why it's a big shell game, because they are committed scripturally to the idea that the church is going to continue to grow when it's not. Now they have to play games with all these numbers. And now maybe it's not going to be people and membership of the church that's going to grow and fill the whole earth. Maybe it's now the monetary vibrancy and all the temples that are not going to be very much used that are going to fill the whole earth in place of the membership. They haven't actually said that outright yet, but I think that's the next step in the process. I suspect you're very close to correct. Do we have that clip for the next one? Or no, your slide for you put the slide up, right? About apostles and prophets. Yeah, you want to go. You already did. Yeah. So we're ready for that clip, aren't we? Yes, sir. Let's see the clip. Woohoo. The second doctrinal truth is the role and importance of prophets, apostles, and ongoing revelation. None of the denominations Joseph Smith affiliated with would have accepted the existence of or the need for modern prophets and apostles because they believe the Bible to be complete and that Jesus superseded the teachings and ministries of all ancient prophets. The concept of a post-biblical prophetic revelation for the entire world would have been rejected by the low church Protestant teachings of Joseph Smith's day. And there we have it, RFM. What do you think of those meat and potatoes? <laughs> when I joined the church back in 1978, um, we were given pamphlets that were produced by the church with each of the missionary discussions, right? And they would teach yeah. a discussion about a certain thing, and then they give a pamphlet which would talk about things and give you additional information and maybe additional scriptures to read in the Book of Mormon and the Bible that went along with this. And I know, or I believe that Elder Bednar's older than I am. He's been a member of the church longer than I am. So I'm surprised he doesn't remember that because there was a pamphlet that talked about the apostasy and the restoration. And one of the main points of that pamphlet was that there were religious leaders in Joseph Smith's day that actually preceded Joseph Smith in the Americas who acknowledged the fact that apostles were gone and that there was an apostasy and that the Lord had to send new apostles to the earth in order for the Lord's church to be once again upon the face of the planet. And yeah. so I went and looked one up because I remembered one of those. I didn't actually find the, um, the pamphlet itself, but one of those was Roger Williams. Remember him, the founder of the First Baptist Church in America? Yes, he, him and I were, we used to have lunch together quite a bit. I'm that old now. I just had a birthday, so. <laughs> well, he's in, he's in the 17th century, so 1636. So definitely before Joseph Smith, he was very important in the Baptist church and important in American religion. But this is what he said. This is from something written about him. It says, not only is Roger Williams the father of our First Amendment, he is also credited with founding the First Baptist Church in America. But Roger Williams soon left the Baptist Church. Why? Because he was teaching the following. Here's what he says. The apostasy, yes, he uses the A word, 
The apostasy hath so far corrupted all that there can be no recovery out of that apostasy until Christ shall send forth new apostles to plant churches anew. That's one of the quotes that was in this pamphlet that I read back in 1978. And he also said this, this is being written about him. When Roger Williams realized that there had been an apostasy, he left the Baptist church, sought for a restoration of priesthood authority. This, this is not in an LDS. I don't think this is in an LDS publication. This is just about Roger Williams. And he told his followers this, there is no regularly constituted church of Christ on earth nor any person qualified to administer any church ordinances, nor can there be until new apostles are sent by the great head, capital G, capital H, the great head of the church for whose coming I am seeking. And that's the end of the quote. He died in 1683. He was still waiting for the restoration. Yeah. Without Roger Williams, there would be no freedom of religion. Oh, I'm sorry. This is written by a Mormon. Without religious freedom, Joseph Smith never could have restored the church on April 6, 1830. So this is going back to the way the church talked about these early religious leaders as paving the way, as recognizing, as Joseph Smith did, the need for a restoration, that there had been an apostasy, a need for priesthood authority, and a need for God to call new apostles. That's why it's a little bit strange to hear Elder Bednar teaching the exact opposite and saying that none of the denominations Joseph Smith affiliated with would have accepted the existence of or need for modern prophets and apostles when that's manifestly not the case. Well, well said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, you know, it might help our current church leadership if they would begin having an extra hour meeting in the temple and studying actual history together as a group before sending them out on, you know, discussions like this. Does nobody review this talk by Elder Bednar? Because really what's obvious is going on is that the the LDS church 40 years ago, when they thought it helped them, would quote Roger Williams about these things to show that uh, it wasn't just Joseph Smith saying this. Other important religious figures believe the same thing. Yeah, it's just that the authority came to Joseph Smith, not these other men, but they were priming the public ready to get them ready for the. Yes, that was one of our missionary discussions. Yes, and there were two others. I can't remember who the other two were, but Roger Williams is one of them, and there were two others. There was a series of quotes along the same lines. But now it's 2022. It's now January of 23, but... Elder Bednar has given this talk on October 30th of 2022, part two. And now he's flipped the script and said nobody was teaching this and trying to show that that shows that Joseph Smith was a prophet because he came up with it on his own. Well, you know what Dan Vogel says? Unfortunately, we have the truth coming out. (laughs) He says Bednar must be a lazy learner. He is. This is what he has, like, uh, tattooed on his forehead. (laughs) Now, now. Okay, now we're getting into mockery, so, you know. Mockery, that's where I live, baby. Lazy, hashtag lazy learner. Lazy learner. There we go. All right. Besides, Dan started it. 
Did you have anything you wanted to say about this subject? Uh, no, I, I think the, uh, the historical uh, contradiction, see, again, and this is unfortunate for the, for the church and the leadership at this point, is the uh, extraordinary need, I'll say, the, the desire to, no matter how we have to cook the noodle, make sure Joseph Smith is in the good. And, and if we have to say one thing to make it look like Joseph Smith is right there on target, then we will say that. And if later on that didn't quite work out, then we can switch the narrative and do another angle. And that still means Joseph Smith comes out on top. And if that doesn't work, well, crap, let's, let's try another angle. It, it mm. just seems like they're fishing and catching nothing, but they're trying to give a context that no matter what happened in history, because they are cafeteria historians, Joseph Smith comes out on top. Great one, cafeteria historians. <laughs> yeah. You so, heard it here first, folks. Actually, I read it on the internet quite a few years ago, but hey, we can tell them they heard it here first. So that uh, the saying was the saying was we will quit being cafeteria Mormons when the church leadership quits being cafeteria historians. I like it. Very good. I, I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. By the Very way, good. it is it is at the end of this uh this section that Elder Bednar does quote. The keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on the earth, and from then shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth, as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hand shall roll forth until it has filled the whole earth. Yes, and that's how he ends his discussion on that upbeat positive note from a completely phony invented book of Scripture. Right, and more and more of these pronouncements of victory and rolling forth to fill the earth or sounding more and more like the Germans broadcasting the fact they were winning the war when the allies were on the outskirts of Berlin. Yeah, exactly. Spot on. Good analogy. Okay. You heard so, that one here first, I hope. Yes, we did. <laughs> Let's go to this next one, shall we? What's the next one, Professor? The eighth doctrinal truth. Now, this is the favorite one. Well, not, not the favorite, but it's an awful good one in the church. Additional Latter-day Scripture. And the Bible is believed as far as it is translated correctly. And the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price help in understanding the Bible more correctly. And Dems the facts, folks. So my impression of this through the research as an apologist. And now I have a wonderful contrast now that I am no longer an apologist is that the approach to the scriptures is always to Mormonize the Bible. And so we read because Joseph Smith, of course, doctrinally could do no wrong other than hide stuff he was doing. But every everyone keeps quoting Joseph Smith. I mean, this Bednar that you may believe is absolutely a beautiful example where he constantly references, well, Joseph Smith said, or Joseph Smith taught, etc. And so when Joseph spoke, everyone shut up, listened, and believed. And what he did dramatically is completely revamp 
and change the context of the biblical record in order to fit his rather creative revelations from bogus books of Scripture. I wish I could be more charitable. I do, but that's the bottom line historical fact. So, Well, it's, a, it's an easier thing to have the Bible agree with you if you have the ability to change it to make it agree with you. <laughs> and as a prophet, Joseph Smith claimed that key and authority. What was his key? I am not just a prophet, seer, and revelator, but also translator. Yes. So there you have it. Yeah. Uh, Do you have the clip that uh, Elder Bednar uses to introduce the subject? Let's see what this gentleman says this time. The Lord's Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was restored in fulfillment of prophecy and will fill the earth. The keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on the earth, and from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth, as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hands shall roll forth until it has filled the whole earth. There it is. That's the one I was just talking about. (laughs) He used the Doctrine and Covenants on that. It was, absolutely. And I'm sorry, I forgot we got that clip earlier this morning when we were I did, too. I knew I'd seen it, but yeah, okay, good. It's all good. So now you've heard it in his own words. I wasn't going blitzoid nuts. (laughs) Okay, so that was the end of the one before. Now we're ready to go to the one we've already introduced with your slide about additional scripture. Do you have that clip? Oh, yes. Now, the third doctrinal truth is the importance of additional Latter-day Scripture. In Joseph's day, Protestant churches generally taught that the Bible was the final, sufficient, and infallible Word of God, and that all truths needed for the salvation of humankind are found therein. Consequently, they did not recognize the need for additional Scripture. Okay. So now he set the stage to talk about the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Yep. But notice he always includes hedge words, weasel words, which he knows he needs to include in order to actually approach being accurate about history. The one in this paragraph is the word generally, because what he said was in Joseph's day, Protestant churches generally taught that the Bible was the final sufficient and infallible word of God. Now, Professor, why do you suppose that Elder Bednar feels compelled to include the word generally in that sentence? He was moved upon by the Holy Ghost? Or maybe he knew he'd get caught if he said absolutely, because the fact is it's not universal. This is the second great awakening. There's all kinds of religious innovations going on. There's all kinds of spiritual experiences and ecstasies and visions and revelations going on at this time period. You can't just categorize them and say everybody believed one thing because there's no thing that everybody believed during this time period any more than you could say the same thing today or pretty much at any period in the history of the world. You can't just say everybody believed one thing and at least he gives himself room to say generally they believe this. But as soon as you say generally, any force of your argument that Joseph Smith was an innovator, yeah, it crashes and burns because you haven't accounted for everybody. You've just accounted for a lot of people. Well, and then just recently, I've had the the Mormon-turned-Jewish scholar, Colby Townsend, on, 
and and he has some magnificent new information and research on the impact of the Book of Enoch, both in the UK and America. And everybody was kind of talking, wrangling, trying to situate it. There was a lot of people who recognized that, hey, we have discovered a lost book of scripture. In Joseph Smith's backyard, they were arguing and talking about it. They were having debates. The the newspapers were discussing it. People were taking extracts from it and sharing it. They were having conferences, probably not the magnitude that we do today in the SBL, but the fantastically interesting thing is it wasn't just all quiet on the Western Front which appears to me to be Bednar's implication here. Oh, we've yes. got the Bible, no more. Not really. That, no, there, there are certainly people who believe that. There are people who believe that today. But I think back then it was much more up for grabs as to what your religious beliefs were. They were not nailed down. No. People are experimenting. They're exploring. And to give you an example, all right, I was brought up pretty much without religion. So I joined the church when I'm 18. I start learning stuff about the Bible, at least what the Mormon church will talk about. And I start learning things like the italicized words, because I'm the guy in Sunday school who gets called upon or raises his hand to read a passage of scripture from the Bible. And I'm actually emphasizing the italicized words as if they are put there for emphasis. And then I find out, wait a second, those actually aren't put there for emphasis. Those are put there in the text by the King James translators to represent linking words that are not actually reflected in the Hebrew text, but we're putting them there in English in order to make it make more sense and be more understandable. So that was a revelation to me. I had no idea that that's what the italicized words were in the Bible. And then I find out in the last few years that even though I was a latecomer to this party, everybody and their dog in Joseph Smith's day knew this. It's not like it was something that was hidden from them. This is once again falling into the trap of presentism, which is if I'm only finding out about it now, then nobody knew about it before me. Well, that's incorrect. And the same thing happens with all the books of scripture that are mentioned in the Bible that are not contained in the Bible. You remember those lists that used to be able to get it on a little card at at Deseret Books? And I had those written out in my uh, scriptures together with the scriptural citations where they're mentioned. And the idea is how can the Bible be complete if it mentions books that it does not contain. Well, and exi- they made a big whoop to do about when Jasher was discovered, the book of Jasher in Joseph's yes. day. Yeah. Right, because the book of Jasher is a book that is referenced in the Old Testament as being apparently authoritative because it's being quoted or referenced for to support something that's being said in the text. And so if there's no book of Jasher, then that's like a open season on somebody creative to come up with a book of Jasher to fill the bill. And I think that's a that's a very good example. Another great example is Enoch, because in the epistle of Jude, and I think it's verse seven, it's so small that doesn't even have chapters. Right. So but uh, where it talks about Enoch and then it mentions a line from Enoch and that's all it is. So. Yeah, Joseph Smith and lots of people, anybody who is at all interested in religion, and that's pretty much everybody in the Second Great Awakening, which is why it's called a Great Awakening, knew about this, and they were interested in it, and they were fascinated by it. They're aware that there is the possibility of scriptures coming forth that are not contained in the Bible, that the Bible really is not it. It's not complete, and the Bible itself attests 
to that fact. So I think that when Elder Bednar is characterizing Joseph Smith's day the way he does, it's not completely accurate. I second the motion, Your Honor. Well, okay, then I guess we're done. No, no, it's time for intermission. Do you want to say anything more about this before we go to the intermission? Oh, my gosh. Wait, have we been through three of these? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, baby. Well, let's, let's do. Yeah, no, no, that was well said. I, I think that's wonderful. Let's uh, let's hide thee hither over to Kolob. Or, uh, okay, so can we talk about this for a second, what he's going to do? What? I just about- He's going to have an intermission where he's going to play some tapes of other people talking. He does that periodically throughout this. So if there's a quote from Joseph Smith, yeah. he'll play some guy with a breathy voice talking and we've like got Joseph his, Smith. We've got examples of that, so. Yes. And if it's it's something from the Book of Mormon, then he'll like play uh, somebody reading this from the Book of Mormon, if it's Corey Hoare or whoever it might be. So here he's going to play somebody reading the scriptures while he's putting up on his big screen all these telescope pictures that are new and wonderful and breathtaking. And he's going to have somebody read passages from the Doctrine and Covenants about how there's a whole lot of stars out there. Right. There's a whole lot of space out there. And he's going to conclude with how could Joseph Smith have gotten this right? How could he have known? How could he have known that there were a ton? Yes, he had a glow-in-the-dark star finder with a Zodiac dial. I am prepared. I just want you to know I'm becoming an Abrahamic astronomer. (laughs) Well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I think, uh, let's see, it's January 15th. I think Orion should probably just be coming up over the eastern horizon about this time. Uh, Just about now, and then it'll zip across the southern horizon. Yep. Yeah. So, but it's as if, it's as if it has never occurred to Elder Bednar that Joseph Smith might have gone out at night and looked up at the sky and seen all the stars there. (laughs) Yeah, that 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 is beyond his capability and talent. Yes, <laughs> I know. But this is this is this is his only entry that I can find in both parts of his talk as to how could Joseph Smith have guessed so many things right? Are you ready to play this? <laughs> I am. I am. OK, yeah. let's go to the tape, folks. This is serious. This is serious. Now, brothers and sisters, because I likely have put you to sleep with the content and tone of my message thus far. We will now have a brief intermission. (laughs) You undoubtedly have seen the most recent and magnificent images of the universe from the world's most powerful telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope. The pictures are breathtakingly beautiful and awe-inspiring. We are now going to listen to several passages of scripture accompanied by recent space images from the Webb telescope. No, we are not. Hold on. We've got a better way to do this. And I said, no, we're not, because we're not going to sit here and listen to all these passages of scripture being read from the mostly from the Doctrine and Covenants, also from Moses chapter one, talking about all the wonderful worlds and and worlds without number have I created and there is no space in which there is no kingdom and no kingdom in which there is no space and that God created all of this stuff because that's what he's going to read or have read while these pictures are playing on the screen. And then he's going to conclude. Now for my three questions. As you bask 
in the indescribable beauty of God's endless creations and listen to the words that were revealed through the prophet Joseph Smith. Here's his three questions. You ready for these three questions? One, was Joseph Smith influenced by the false traditions of his day? Well, no, I guess not, because he knew there were a lot of stars up there. And darn if the telescope pictures that we have now don't confirm him in that belief. There you go. Two, are the concepts and ideas expressed in these revelations the product of a frenzied and deranged mind? He keeps going back to that. It's something that's said in the Book of Mormon. I think it's Alma 30. I think it's about Corihor, right? Yeah. Talking yeah. about these ideas of believing in Christ are the product of a frenzied and deranged mind. He keeps coming back to that because he thinks he's got a good point to make with that over and over. And three, did the prophet Joseph Smith merely guess right? And he says the only way, I don't think we have this clip. He says the only way any person at any time, anywhere in the world could have done what young Joseph Smith did. Oh, we think did too. Okay, go ahead and play that one. I, I think I did put that clip. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, wait a minute, that sound. Let's take a look anyway, because we want to get to this next clip. Yeah, I, I think yeah. it's in this one. Sorry, I, I think we have this. So That'd be great if we did. My three questions. Good. As you bask in the indescribable beauty of God's endless creations and listen to the words that were revealed through the prophet Joseph Smith, was Joseph Smith influenced by the false traditions of his day? Are the concepts and ideas expressed in these revelations the product of a frenzied and deranged mind? Did Joseph Smith merely guess right? Are you kidding me? <laughs> the only way any person at any time, anywhere in the world could have done what young Joseph Smith did and think what young Joseph thought is with God's help and inspiration. In my judgment, to believe that he accomplished all that he accomplished with his limited mortal capacity is unreasonable. You do yeah. have it. I love that picture too. And the way they make it so the stars sort of come towards you. I keep expecting to hear William Shatner's voice speaking over this. <laughs> oh my, my God, favorite yeah. show as a kid, man. Star Trek. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go. It's supposed to be boldly. Where no man has gone before. <laughs> and apparently where no apostle has gone before. This is the part where Elder Bednar overplays his hand. His enthusiasm runs away with him. Because Elder Bednar goes too far to say that the most reasonable way to understand what Joseph accomplished is to impose God's help in the process. Yeah. Now, Joseph Smith did do a lot, but let's go back to this. Let's make sure we make this point, okay? I'm not as impressed as Elder Bednar is that Joseph Smith received revelations that said there's a shit ton of stars up there in the sky, okay? That's, that's I'm all I'm you. saying. I'm with you. Elder, Elder Bednar thinks that's pretty amazing. I'm thinking, eh. Uh, he probably could have figured that one out on his own. But he wants to impose God's help. In fact, he insists that the only way Joseph Smith could have known this was with God's help. Now, Are you kidding me? That's what he said. You just played it. Yeah, I'm quoting him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? 
you kidding me? So Joseph Smith, don't get me wrong. Joseph Smith did a lot in his brief life. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But, you know, so have other people. And what Joseph Smith did looks more impressive when we aren't looking at how his teachings evolved over time. And also what he did looks more impressive if we're not looking at the many failures that he had, none of which Elder Bednar wants to tell us about. But that is the intermission. The intermission's over, and now he wants to consider two additional truths. Once again, in his version of an intermission, Elder Bednar keeps talking. (laughs) He did, too. He never shut up. In fact, he never even paused RFM. He just kept right on romping. (laughs) Yep, here's our intermission, and I'm going to keep on talking. We're looking at the stars. Okay, done. Now let's get back to the good stuff, the doctrinal truths. So yes, and we've only got two more. We've only got two more left. We're making progress. So let's take a look at this ninth one. This is the doctrinal truth, ninth doctrinal truth, the covenants and ordinances. Yeah, here we go. The priesthood ordinances are essential. And they were had from the beginning. Now, when he says beginning, he means from Adam on. He means beginning. So, and then it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism by immersion for remission of sins, gift of the Holy Ghost, etc. And children are saved if they don't receive these before age eight. Would you like to read that quote by Bednar RFM on that picture? I will be happy to. I will note in passing that the first four principles and ordinances of the gospel, I believe, are exactly identical to Alexander Campbell's first four principles and ordinances of the gospel, which he got from a study of the Bible. Okay, just saying. Now, here's the quote from Elder Bednar in the second part of this wonderful slide you put together. Where where is this from, by the way, this quote? Is this from the same talk? I don't think so. I'm not quite sure. It was just a cool-looking slide, and I saw David Bednar said something about covenants and ordinances. So well, it's it a, might as well be, because it's the same kind of thing he always says, and, and the same is. kind of thing shows up in this talk, where he says, covenants and ordinances point us to and help us always remember our connection with the Lord Jesus Christ as we progress along the covenant path. I love that covenant path stuff, you know? It's hard to stay awake just reading that. Yeah. <laughs> you about put me to sleep, so I'm going to hurry up and get into this clip so that we can get all excited again. Here we go. Hang on to your britches, people. Hey, intermission is over. And we will consider two additional doctrinal truths. The fourth truth is the role and importance of sacred covenants and ordinances. The understanding of what covenants and priesthood ordinances are whether they are necessary and how they are to be performed vary greatly among the various Christian churches of Joseph's day. Most Christian denominations thought far less in terms of covenants and much more in terms of sacraments or in some cases ordinances. Okay. So you see, once again, he's trying to, trying to establish that this is new. This is new stuff coming out of Joseph Smith. It could only come from God because it's different from what other Christians taught. And yet he has to insert the same kind of weasel words because he knows he can't say this with any kind of absoluteness. And once again, he has to say that, what is it he says most? Most Christian denominations thought less in terms of covenants and more in terms of sacraments. Well, if he says most Christian denominations, what is he saying on the other side of that without actually saying the words? 
that there were some that did talk in terms of covenants, right? If most Christian denominations thought less in terms of covenants, that means that some Christian denominations did think in terms of covenants. Do you think that's fair to say? It's going, yes, but it's going to be more unlikely that Joseph Smith would have been influenced because most of them did not think in those terms. So that's why he's doing that. Well, can I suggest that if I'm going to start a new church and want people to be excited about it, I'm going to take the less believed aspects of different churches and put them together. If I take what everybody already believes and stick it together in a church, why is anybody going to be excited about that? Why is anybody going to join? I want to take different, more novel ideas from my surroundings and put them together to come up with something really, really exciting and really revelatory. So you're saying that we really are Raelians. I'm sorry, that we're really Israelians? Raelians, like Scientology teaches. Okay, that's why I don't know about the Raelians. Oh, okay. Well, what are the Raelians? Oh, they are the lizard people that are actually inhabiting us from the galaxies far, far away. We We have not only been visited... We are them. See, that's the lesser believed, lesser known, and that's why Scientology is such a success. (laughs) Well, that would help explain the prehensile tail I'm growing. Ooh, you better tuck that thing in, pal. (laughs) I could get cited for indecent exposure. (laughs) But what I wanted to say about this is he wants to make this thing about covenants, right? Oh, my gosh. Of course, he's got to go to covenants. I don't know. When I hear covenants, my eyes start rolling up in the back of my head because I hear it so often. And it's just this control mechanism that the LDS church uses on its members. Now, is the idea of covenants, is this new to the Old Testament? No, because the Old Testament is all about covenants and ordinances. And the New Testament, by the way, has ordinances in it as well. And guess what else is in the New Testament? Oh, there's this idea about a new covenant. Because Jesus is seen by the author of Hebrews as the new covenant. He's the mediator of the new covenant is how it's put in Hebrews 9, 15. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So even in the New Testament, there's reference to covenants in a very, very important way. And one of the things that I think accounts for the prevalence, and this is getting just sort of serious and analytical about things, that I think the prevalence of covenants... Never get serious. I'm serious. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Sorry. And serious is right next to Orion. It's probably clearing the horizon as well. It is. I think the prevalence of covenant in Mormonism, the idea of covenant in Mormonism, stems primarily from incorporating Old Testament ideas into the Restoration. Because covenant, especially the Abrahamic covenant, i.e. Book of Abraham, they were critical in the Old Testament, and they became critical, actually, in the New Testament under Paul, though he reframed it such that people who believed in Jesus could become adopted into the Abrahamic covenant. They became critical in Mormonism, and probably through the same route, Old Testament to New Testament to Mormonism, uh, Tinker to Evers to Chance. This is part of the idea of dispensationalism, that Old Testament peoples had the gospel as well. And so when Joseph Smith restored everything that had existed in prior dispensations, that would include things from the Old Testament too, including 
covenant. So I don't think there's a huge surprise factor that Mormonism puts a lot of emphasis on covenants because it's from the Old Testament and the New Testament. It doesn't have to be something that is new or not talked about by other people and other Christians in Joseph Smith's day. That's well said. I can't. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Did you want to add anything to that, Professor? No. Why should I? That was absolutely fantastic. That was, uh, I mean, wow. Of course, and you always impress me, RFM, because you are just so crisp. I'm just saying. Yeah, that's me all over. Hey, do we have this other quote from the same section about Joseph Smith declared? Okay. Yeah, I had to get that clip because of the voice that we're about to mock and make merry on. Well, it's just this idea that when someone's playing Joseph Smith, they have to give this breathy voice so that you know he's inspired. It sounds like someone who's making some kind of an obscene phone call. <laughs> it really does. It's it's fundamentally sillier than I'll get out. But let's take a gander, shall we? Pointed. Joseph Smith declared, God set the ordinances to be the same forever and ever, and set Adam to watch over them, to reveal them from heaven to man, or to send angels to reveal them. The ordinances must be kept in the very way God has appointed. Otherwise, their priesthood will prove a cursing instead of a blessing. There you go. Yeah, we had to show that one. So, Professor, I'm just guessing that Adam is not doing too good a job of watching over those ordinances because they have all changed in the LDS Church over time since its inception. Ooh, observation, sharpness. Yeah, and and the uh, here's the other interesting thing. Now, of course, I was enamored with Hugh Nibley for so long and with the Farms mm. Group and all that. Now, weren't we all? Weren't we all? Yeah, you were right in there with me, man. We just didn't know each other back then. Boy, wouldn't that have been a fun trip to do together? We're having the fun trip now together. What what impresses me now is that, and it takes a while, for whatever reason, you and I have been blessed to be able to see this. There are some apologists who still don't, but mm. the— My eyes were anointed so that I could see this. There you go. Yes, I just grabbed a seer stone out of the alley, back alley, so that I could see this. But um, and it worked well enough. I wrote stuff on it. Hey, look at that! But um, all of the all of the uh, ancient parallels. I think what impressed me the most, even Stephen Robinson did his dissertation on this uh, book of Adam thing. This, you know, Nibley was making a big whoop de doo He said, you know, the gospel, Joseph Smith could not have known that the gospel went all the way back to Adam and that that would be confirmed in archaeologically discovered texts, linguistic materials, and he ju- he really built it up into a fabulous scholarship, and nothing. And and then of course they find that Adam was baptized. These ancient documents talk about Adam being baptized in the water. So this is proof positive that he had all the ordinances of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the church has today. And I don't recall any of those ancient texts talking about baptism for the dead in the temple on the back of 12 oxen in a watery basin like we found in Solomon's temple. 
There mm-hmm. is nothing about Adam having the Melchizedek priesthood. There is nothing about him passing the sacrament to his family as a deacon with the Aaron. I mean, come on, let's get real. There's nothing in the baptism of Adam in any of these ancient documents. What so flipping ever of being baptized in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And the only two there was Adam and Eve, so she apparently had the priesthood and she dunked. I mean, come on, man. None of the modern LDS view is in any of these ancient parallels. Uh, so when when that begins to dawn on you, you recognize the serious problematic nature of the claim until you come to recognize, which I have just recently, that this is also the Masonic point of view. They said the Masonry was had all the way. Heck, man, they go from not only Adam, they go into a pre-mortal existence to the angels and to God himself as being the Freemason and having these spectacular rituals and stuff like that. So, I, I mean, when you stop and look at it, this just doesn't have traction. Right. And he goes on to quote from the Book of Mormon, actually from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, about the correct words to say when you're baptizing somebody, right? Yes. The person uh-huh. who is called of God and has authority from Jesus Christ to baptize shall go down into the water with the person who has presented himself or herself for baptism and shall say, calling him or her by name, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And we always get hung up on the of, right? Because you got to say it word for word correct. Otherwise, the baptism doesn't take. Even yep. if you get them completely immersed, the language has to be exactly correct. So we focus on that. We do it in Japanese, too. It's Timputo Onkoto Seire Tonomina Niorite Nanjini Baputesimo Ohodokosu Amen. So you get those three toes in there, just like you get the three ofs in it when you're saying in English. The difference is, of course, that he goes from Doctrine and Covenant section 20 and doesn't mention that the language, the word is different in Moroni, where instead of commissioned, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, it's having been authorized. So even that is different. Even the fundamental baptismal ordinance and prayer has changed over time. And that's nothing compared to what's happened with the other ordinances and especially, especially the ordinance of the endowment, which has changed a lot and is changing more in recent years under President Nelson than maybe it ever has before. He's tinkering with it all over the place. And the thing that's really remarkable about this is if we're going to take this seriously, what Joseph Smith said and what Elder Bednar just played, he said the ordinances must be kept in the very way God has appointed. Otherwise, their priesthood will prove a cursing instead of a blessing. Yeah. So here's Elder Bednar, who knows all about all these changes that President Nelson is making and that he's affirming and subscribing to and rubber stamping in the temple endowment. And yet he is playing a quote from Joseph Smith saying that if you change these, then the priesthood that you have, Elder Bednar, I'll speak directly to you since you gave the talk, your priesthood will prove a cursing instead of a blessing. Good challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And. Seriously, they know this. I mean, they are men in authority, and so they they need to 
you know, portray that authority, but I, they're on the inside. I mean, they have council meetings all the time too, and they actually are determining as a group, those changes. So they know this is happening, but they're not letting the rest of us in on it until later. And then they're downplaying this information you just said. Well, President Benson, the living prophet, always trumps the dead prophet. Then why on earth do they keep quoting the dead prophet, Joseph Smith? I mean, let's let's face it. That is a, a questionable doctrinal stance to take. Mm-hmm. You're right. And especially when they quote Joseph Smith, a lot of times it undercuts their position. This talk by Elder Bednar is really kind of a mess. I know he has 10 ideas and he numbers them one through five and then one through five again, which itself is kind of messy, but at least he's got a structure. So I give him that much, but he has all these contradictory ideas inside of it that have made it so that it took me quite a bit of time to unravel it and be able to parse it out and figure out why it is that his talk doesn't make any sense whatsoever, that it does not accomplish what he promised it would accomplish at the beginning. And he changes everything and goes to what it is we'll be playing in the conclusion after we get to his 10th and final point, which is now about temple ordinances and covenants. The first part is just about non-temple ordinances and covenants. Now we're going to get to the temple ordinances and covenants. You can tell he's struggling to fill out his roster of 10 ideas. He appears to me to be doing just that too, but uh, yeah, let me just say it. It took you, it took you a while to uh, to sort through this, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on my program again and have you helping the rest of us sort through this stuff because sometimes it's not it's difficult um, because we are so enmeshed in never. Uh, technically questioning the the leadership of the church and all, if you're still within Mormonism, more or less, truly, seriously, both of his audiences were university LDS students. How many of them, honestly, are going to look into this the way you and I have in order to see, well, where is the consistency? Where is the inconsistency? Where is the doctrinal problematic issues, if there are? See, we even we have come to the point to where we can at least ask the question, are there doctrinal inconsistencies? Most of those students aren't going to even think that way. They're going to no, say, no, not at all. Wow, we're listening. Elder Bednar saying it, it's all perfectly consistent. It's all brilliant. And the degree to which I do not grasp how brilliant it is, is a reflection on my lack of spirituality and intelligence, not on Elder Bednar's. That's how they want it presented. And they do a great psychological manipulative job in that, as you and I and everyone in this audience knows. So, yeah, yeah. So, okay, yeah, let's go to this 10th one. Can I just mention one other thing before we go to it? Oh, sure. I apologize, because he's going to talk about baptism as well. And I just want to show you what he has to do, because he talks about baptism by immersion, right? Well, tons of people were baptizing by immersion in Joseph Smith's day. So this doesn't really work so well with what he's trying to say with all the other things, but he's going to say it anyway. And what he says is baptism is to be done by immersion in likeness of death, burial and resurrection. This point of doctrine was known and embraced 
by some of Christianity at the time of the restoration. You see how this is really cutting his argument off at the knees, and even he knows it. But, he says, but other forms of baptism, such as pouring and sprinkling, were also practiced. And I'm just sitting here thinking, what is your point, Elder Bednar? Yeah. What is your point exactly? You are admitting it was in existence during Joseph Smith's day, the baptism by immersion. So that is a likely source for his ideas. Is it not more reasonable, since that's what this is all about, reasonableness, Elder Bednar? Is it not more reasonable to posit other Christian beliefs as the source of Joseph Smith's idea or ideas than direct intervention by God? Well put. Bravissimo. Thank you. No, yeah, my father yeah. thanks you, my mother thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you. Yeah, but that is a profoundly poignant, poignant, another Joseph Smith word I love to use, <laughs> concept. Poignant? Poignant, yeah. Okay, let's take a look at this. Uh, Did you already show your 10th slide? Oh, my gosh. You I wouldn't want to leave that I on the cutting room floor. More of these clips. Did I, did I not show that 10th slide? I can't remember. I've been talking a lot. Again, hold on. No, I love what you're saying. That's no, the 10th slide. Yeah, I read it. Oh, that's there, the 10th one. Yeah, there, we didn't yeah. get there. Okay. Did we? Uh, we did. We Maybe did. I'm remembering this morning. You go ahead. Well, we did, and then you backed out to go back to the ninth. It's all good. It's all good. Okay. Tenth doctrinal truth, temple covenants and ordinances and work for the dead, celestial merits for time and all eternity. And then Elijah Keys bind on earth and in heaven. And individuals who don't get them here can have it given to them by proxy through temple work by the living here. Can I just so, say that celestial marriage for time and all eternity has got to be like one of the worst ideas in the history of bad ideas. I'm just saying. You are saying that as a... I may be a little jaded, I admit. It's all good. We still love you. I, I think eternity is a long time. Well, and, you know, let, let, let's be frank here for just a moment. There are some people whom I have had conversations with who ask, do you really, I'm, I mean, is it true that I'm really going to have to spend an entire eternity with my entire family? Because there's some of my family members that I'm happier without. I haven't seen them for 35 years in this life. Why would I want to spend eternity with them? You know, that mm. kind of you know, there's an individual I was talking to on the phone the other day who has his own podcast. Mm -hmm. By the way, I'm not going to say his name, okay? But I was okay. just talking to him, and he was having a holiday party at his house, and there was some man in the background who was raising his voice. It sounded quite strident. And I told this fellow, I said, I didn't know if I was calling in the middle of a domestic or something. And he says, yeah, just let me, let me go out on the front porch. Let me go on the front porch so I can talk to you. And so he goes out, closes the door, and he talks to me, and he tells me about, you know, his family's over, and there's relatives, and there's in-laws, and it's not really pleasant, and he'd rather be outside talking to me. And I told him, well, I got to go now. After about five minutes of him on the porch, I got to go now. But if you want to keep talking on your phone for another half hour, pretending that you're talking to me, I won't squeal on you. And he, he, and he laughed good-naturedly. And I said, okay, I just want to leave you with one thought before I go, okay? He says, what's that? I said, these are the people that you're going to be spending eternity with. Ooh. So, food for thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He laughed. It's a, it's, a, it's a laugh line, but that's more than just it's a laugh more line. Than, it's funny because yeah. it's true. Right, right, right. No, no, that's that's interesting. Okay, let's, uh, let's check out more of Elder Bednar. Number 10, with a bullet. Baptism is to be done by immersion in likeness of death, burial, 
and resurrection. This is the clip I just this read. This point of doctrine was known and embraced by some of Christianity at the time of the Restoration. But other forms of baptism, such as pouring and sprinkling, were also practiced. Okay, Boom. that was the clip. We did have that clip. We did. You're more, okay. pre you're more prepared than you know for tonight's show. Well, the last time you might have been less prepared, but tonight you are super prepared, Professor. I'm making up for it. So, all right, yes. let's go to this next clip then. Okay. The fifth doctrinal truth is the role and importance of sacred temple covenants and ordinances and vicarious work for the dead. <clears throat> the Christian churches of Joseph's day had no understanding of the temple covenants and ordinances that provide access to the fullness of God's blessings. The prophet no, Joseph sure Smith oh, stated clearly, but the all did. men who become heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ will have to receive the fullness of the ordinances of his kingdom. And those who will not receive all the ordinances will come short of the fullness of that glory. Oh, shiver me timbers. Shiver me timbers, he will be as strong as a hurricane. Arc over the bounding main. Extra credit for anybody who gets that song. So, but yeah, yeah. The Christian churches had no idea about all these temple covenants, but the Masons sure did. The Masons knew all about them. They did too. Yeah. And I suppose many, most of the Masons were Christians, and therefore there were Christians who did know all about these Masonic temple ordinances. Truly. I have a, uh, if, if I may, take a brief moment. This is my doctrine, again, from our dear friend Charlie Harrell. Page 313, let me just read this real quick. In light of your thought, though different in certain respects, many similarities can be seen between this new temple endowment and Freemasonry ceremonies. For example, the endowment incorporated the same five points of fellowship, which it did. I can verify that. I went through that. Since 1990, it's no longer been used in the Mormon endowment. It had the same kinds of gruesome penalties. I, again, as a Freemason, can verify that, though that also was discontinued in the 1990s, and the same compass and square symbols. That's obvious. Okay, so the Masonic ritual included a uh, rehearsal of the periods of creation. As initiates representing Adam progressed through stages according to their sincere desire to make advances in knowledge and virtue, uh, initiates to Freemasonry also were cer wore ceremonial regalia, aprons, robes, etc., with instructions that they were never to be forgotten or laid aside. BYU Humanities Professor George S. Tate notes that prayer circles were also conducted by Freemasons of the period who arranged themselves in circular formations around an altar, repeating in unison the received Masonic signs. So these and other striking similarities between the endowment ceremony and Freemasonry rites prompted Richard Bushman, premier Mormon historian, I'm saying that, to assert that the endowment ceremonies instituted in Nauvoo were inspired by the rituals of Freemasonry to which Joseph Smith had recently been exposed. So I just wanted to share that. Boom. And I yeah. would even go further and say, recently exposed? Yeah, we know that he was raised to him as a master Mason in Nauvoo, but he'd been exposed to Masonry for basically his whole life. Yeah. Through his brother, through his dad 
through lots and lots of people who are Masons. I think so. So shall we go on to that? We've got, I've got 13 clips here, uh, RFM, and I think we're on. Let's just go and take them one by one. What do you say? I bet the next one's about Elijah, about what you have a little bit to say. Uh, I can't remember if I did Elijah or not. Let's find out. The prophet Joseph Smith explained, and I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Why send Elijah? Because he holds the keys of the authority to administer in all the ordinances of the priesthood. And unless the authority is given, the ordinances could not be administered in righteousness. So here he's talking about, you know, he's talking about John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John. He's talking about Moses. He's talking about Elias. He's talking about Elijah. And Elijah is very important. And he's talking about all this priesthood restoration, especially Elijah when it comes to the temple. Okay. Now, the thing is this, is that when you actually dig this quote out, he ends up going to a church manual that has this quote in it. But if you go to the manual, it's teachings of the presidents of the church, the Joseph Smith manual, page 310, for those of you who want to go through the circuit and the scripture chain. Right. You take that, you find it in the manual, you look at the footnote in the manual to see where it came from, and it comes from History of the Church, volume 4, page 211. And I want to read to you some of what's around that. I went and I found this and I made a, um, a copy for myself, at least, of this page of the history of the church. And by the way, this is the same. Page. I will be your second witness out of the mouth. of <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can look it up on the Internet pretty easily to put LDS, comma, history of the church, volume four, page 211. It's pretty easy to find once you know the actual citation. But this is the discourse and the page from the history of the church in which Joseph Smith talks about animal sacrifice being part of the restoration of all things that will happen at least for a brief period of time before Jesus comes again. Because everything that happened in the past has to be restored in order for there to be a complete and full restoration of everything which is needed before Jesus comes. So look Inclu after your including wearing fig leaf aprons again. Yes. So look after your cats and hide your dogs. Okay. Holy cow. And animal sacrifice will be coming back. But in the midst of this, all right. Okay. He says, Elijah was the last prophet that held the keys of the priesthood and who will future tense, who will before the last dispensation restore the authority and deliver the keys of the priesthood in order that all the ordinances may be attended to in righteousness. It is true that the Savior had authority and power to, be, to bestow this blessing, but the sons of Levi were two prejudices. And now he gets to the quote, it's what Elder Bednar played, and I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord, etc., etc. Why send Elijah? Because he holds the keys of the authority. Now, this is not the only quote about Elijah that's like this. I'm not going to go into this at this point because it would be too much of a sideshow, but when... Joseph Smith is talking about Elijah as coming in the future. One would expect that he's talking before April of 1836, which is when, according to our history now that has been carefully assembled and correlated for our consumption, that's when Elijah showed up along with Moses and Elias, right? Mm -hmm. In the temple at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple in April of 1836. Now, one of the strange things in Mormon history, one of the strange chestnuts is that on multiple occasions after April of 1836, Joseph Smith 
appears to talk about Elijah's coming as if it is still in the future, as if it is still something to be expected. And this entire quote, which we've done the circuitous route of figuring out where it came from in the history of the church, volume four, page 211, is from a sermon that Joseph Smith gave in October of 1840, which is four and a half years after our history today tells us that Elijah came to the Kirtland Temple. Now, there's a possibility he's talking about things in the past as if they're in the future, but this happens on a number of occasions to the point where it has been pointed out that it's a strange thing and perhaps something that is not completely answered yet as why it is that after it's supposed to have happened, Joseph Smith appears to continue to talk about it as if it's something that hasn't happened yet. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, that's, uh, we actually, in talking earlier, this is one of those chestnuts that, like I say, my my understanding of church history has not been nearly as in-depth as yours and Bill Reels and other people's. But uh, well, I've lived more of it than you have. And Charlie Harrell's, too, in, in this is my doctrine. He talks a lot about Elijah, the development, <laughs> excuse me, of the doctrine. But, yeah, this idea of... Hey, professor, professor, at the bottom left, you got a little mute button. You can... You can like, you know, hit that when you have to sneeze. I'm just saying. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. You found it. <laughs> I find it too often. You don't find it enough. <laughs> All right. But uh, yeah, Charlie Harrell actually describes the enlargement. Every time Joseph Smith seemed to talk about Elijah beginning early on in his career, he kept adding more to this doctrine of Elijah, making it grander and grander and larger and more all-inclusive. At first, there was absolutely nothing about sealing power. I mean, why? Peter, James, and John came and gave Joseph Smith the Melchizedek priesthood, and Peter was given the power to bind on earth what is bound in heaven. You know, Matthew 16, 19. I mean, come on. Are you kidding me? To quote Bednar, now Elijah also has to have that. It's redundant, you know. But through time, through the 15 years of his Elijah discoursing, Joseph Smith kept reinterpreting Malachi enlarging Elijah's mission and even brought in through a creative misreading of the scripture and the meaning of the work for the dead, none of that is attested about Elijah anywhere. That's mm. all Joseph Smith. Through the course of a 15-year stretch, the real big uh, part of the doctrine, if we can put it that way, is, of course, in Nauvoo. In Nauvoo, that's where Joseph Smith's creativity just blossomed like a desert on the rose. <laughs> a rose on the like desert. Like a desert on the rose. That one we've definitely heard here first. I don't think anybody's ever said that before. <laughs> I'm dyslexic. I believe in dog. So the... Uh, the idea, the idea is, what do you get if you take an agnostic, an insomniac, and a dyslexic and put them all together? What do you got? The answer is, you've got a person who can't get to sleep at night because he's wondering if there really is a dog. 
<laughs> See, you have added two, just like Joseph Smith did with Elijah. That's awesome. I love it. Thank you. Boy, that's a tough one to remember all the elements, at least for me. It, it is. Yeah, you have to kind of double think that one. So, so anyway, that this whole idea, this whole principle of Elijah, uh, and perhaps, and the reason I brought Charlie Harrell's approach up is maybe that's why um, Joseph Smith was constantly talking about it in the future tense. And yet we do know that in the Kirtland Temple, he claimed Elijah came. And of course, there was studies. Did in he, though? Ooh, are you talking conspiratorial aspects? No, I'm just talking about historical events that never happened that were subsequently created and backdated, like the restoration of the priesthood through Peter, James, and John. I'm just suggesting that maybe PB and J aren't the only time this happened. No, it's not. Elijah is too, definitely. Yeah, yeah. That it is so remarkable that that uh, it was in the Nauvoo period when all of that came to the bear, came to the the front and was thrown all together when none I said of PB and J I meant PJ and J yeah PJ and J yeah so uh yeah this is like John's this, sandwich there you go kind of like uh bacon lettuce and <laughs> <laughs> this is becoming an NC17 show you gotta have the BLT and the PJT yep the desert there is you. definitely off the rose on this one <laughs> Do you have another clip? Can you get us out of here with a clip from Belder Ben? You realize we've been going almost two hours, man. Yeah, it only yeah. seems like four. Let's get out of here. Let's uh, let's share the wealth of knowledge and fecundity with which we have been hearing the elaboration of from our beloved Elder Bednar. I now invite you to accept Alma's invitation to awake and arouse your faculties to the exercise of a particle of faith. Though you cannot see or touch it, does the word of truth begin to swell within your breasts? And do these restored truths enlarge your soul? Can you feel by the power of the Holy Ghost the truth of these doctrinal foundations which cannot be touched or seen, but which begin to enlighten your understanding and increase your faith? Okay, so we've heard this many, many times before. It's right from Alma 32. Yeah. But notice, this is where he ends the talk that he began, excuse me, part one, talking about he's going to give a reasonable argument and right. evidence and rationality. This is what he's reduced to. This is where he ends up, in spite of what he promised. And simply repeating Alma's idea about planting the seed and seeing if it grows is not a rational argument. It is based, once again, on subjective experience, which experience has shown is not a reliable guide to discerning truth. Yeah. Let me, uh, le let me also just indicate something here. I have two more clips of Bednar that I really do want to show. Let, let's double check here something now, because we're seeing something subtle occur here. Now, on a completely different occasion, here is what else oh. Are you, are you going to this other stuff that we talked about? Yeah. Okay, before you do that, I think there's another clip that you have to play that starts oh, with reason is important. Okay, let's look at it. Oh, there is. I apologize. I thought I was on 13. Okay, yes, let's, uh, let's look at this one. This is our final clip, but this is critical to grasp. Right, because he starts saying, I'm going to use reason, but now he's going reason to say is reason important, is important, but meh. 
However, it is neither the best nor the only way of knowing. A witness of truth by the power of the Holy Ghost that we invite into our soul produces a spiritual knowledge, an illumination, and a conviction more sure, more powerful, and more enduring than can be received through seeing, hearing, touching, or rational argument alone. Alone. Right. So he starts off, and I was talking over him. My apologies, Elder Bednar. Reason is important and useful. However, it is neither the best nor the only way of knowing. And he ends by saying that, you know, just the spiritual feeling is more significant. It's more enduring. It's more powerful than actually seeing something or experiencing it with your senses. That's where he ends up. And I wanted to say a couple things about it before you get to these other ideas. Absolutely. So, Elder Bednar, why, so why did you start out by promising us a rational argument and quoting Austin Farrar? If all you're going to do is bail on that idea at the end of your talk and go to a testimony meeting. From the 20,000 foot view of this talk, Elder Bednar promises a rational argument to show that belief in Mormonism is not unreasonable. But all he does in this regard is show that Joseph Smith was a theological innovator and in some instances, but not all by any means, he came up with ideas not believed by other Christians in his community. Okay? That's the best argument he has. Yeah. This is not a rational argument. No. That what Joseph innovated is true, but just that it's an innovation. History is full of religious innovators. Does the fact that they are innovations mean that they were inspired by God? This would be the case if Elder Bednar's argument were correct. All innovations would be inspired by God and not just Joseph Smith's. But in case after case, what we find is that the ideas produced by Joseph Smith were, in fact, available to him in his own culture and environment. There seems to be precious little, if anything, that he produced that wasn't said or taught by someone else and to which he had access. This is really playing havoc with Elder Bednar's thesis. So, having failed completely at producing a shred of rationality in his arguments. He, of course, has to go to the subjective experience with the spirit because that is the only place he has left to go. It is the only place he has had to go from the beginning of his talk. This talk is smoke and mirrors. It is not a rational argument. What Elder Bednar has demonstrated is that, yes, in fact, belief in Mormonism is not reasonable and that critics who say belief in Mormonism is unreasonable are correct. If it makes you feel any better, Elder Bednar, so is belief in Catholicism unreasonable, or Methodism, or Episcopalianism, or Presbyterianism. All religious faith is unreasonable. That's the very definition of faith. That's why it's called faith. If religious faith were, in fact, reasonable, everybody would believe it, or at least most people would, because the truth of it would be obvious to everyone. That's the definition of something that's reasonable. It's obvious to everyone or to a large majority of people. So that is my final take on Elder Bednar's two-part talk. We've gone over it in such detail, mainly because he's so excited about it and that people who don't really pay the attention to it that you and I have, Professor, are going to think this is the best talk since sliced bread. We've got an apostle of the Lord taking on the critics, showing that Mormonism is true and using evidence-based argumentation to do it. And so I expect that lots of questioning members may be having this talk sent to them or recommended to them by believing family and friends 
and that perhaps a need for an analysis of this talk, both parts one and two, would be helpful in understanding it better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not a matter of disparaging because I, I do want to end with these final couple of clips simply because I have been doing uh, BYP response to Elder Bednar from other addresses, and yet he is like the Apostle Paul in some respects who says, well, to the Romans, I'm a Roman. To the Jews, I'm a Jew. To the Mormons, Mormons, I'm a Mormon. Yeah, they found a lost manuscript of Paul. He prophetically saw this day. So, but he's amazing. So remember what he just said. Now, this is going to be comparing what Elder Bednar says in this talk with what he said in another talk that's not so long ago, really. No. But here he's put the absolute importance of receiving a witness of the Holy Ghost as this is the prime directive. You have to receive this. You can't live on borrowed light. You have to get your own testimony and a testimony of the Holy Ghost and an experience with the Spirit is better than seeing, handling, feeling, smelling, anything you can do through your senses. It's much more powerful. It's much more enduring. And this is what you need to get in order to know that this church is true, is this experience with the Spirit. Okay, having recapitulated what he said at the end of this talk on October 30th, 2022, are you ready to play what he said in another talk with his feelings about how important it is to have an experience of the Spirit and be able to recognize it when the Spirit is talking to you? Absolutely. And make no mistake about it, also recognize that Elder Bednar is using the most correct book on the face of the earth in order to share the vitality and importance of you get your testimony. Now let's take a look. I've got a couple more clips I need to share with you. Hopefully this is the one. Okay, let's, ooh, I may not have it. Hold on. Let me see if you, okay, I'll just play it this way. Well, after that buildup, I hope we have something. Are you hearing that? No, I'm just humming something from the Wiz to fill the time. And you can't the hear whiz, that. I need to take one. What? No, I can't. I can hear nothing. Oh, and you can't see it either. Correct. Okay. All I see is a still picture of Elder Bednar, and it looks like uh, there's a play button that can oh, be hit. Man, I had this set up. I swear to goodness. Now I muff it up. Okay, this is the one where he was said, he said, no borrowed light. Okay, now this one, I should mm. be in to, mm. hold on. I'm watching the number of active viewers. View slideshow. <laughs> can, can you see the, can you see it? Uh, no. Oh, man. And I'm looking. I'm trying to see it. Oh, I know, I know. Can you see it now? No. Okay, hold on. Let me see if I've. I've got the screen sharing. This is like Marco Polo. Oh, you can see. Yeah, that's. I'll be darned. I wonder if I can play it that way. Oh, I'm sorry. Anyway. Oh, well, let's end this on a bad note. What the heck? I couldn't be a perfect uh, host today anyway. So when I edit this tomorrow to put it up on RFM, it's going to be seamless. There you go. Um, It is where I just recently did a BYP response where he said, quit worrying about it. Is it the Holy Ghost or me? Quit worrying about it. Stop fussing. Stop, stop losing fretting, sleep. Start, stop stewing. Yeah. 
Just right. forget about it. It doesn't make any difference. Quit worrying about whether it's the Holy Ghost or whether it's your own thoughts. All you got to do is do what you're supposed to do. Do what I tell you and we'll get along fine. But quit That's asking this dumbass question. It's a question we always get. We've got no freaking answer to it. So quit worrying about it. Yeah, that yes. was his oh, and I, I don't think I'm overplaying it. No, uh-uh. But compared to here, now it's the, the most important thing you can get and you have to get it. And then in this other talk, he's talking yeah. about how it's not important at all. Quit, quit worrying about whether you can identify the Holy Ghost. All that you need to do is do everything that you're supposed to do. That's yeah. it. Now, the answer to the question, how do you tell if it's the Holy Ghost or just me? Answer, quit worrying about it. <laughs> quit fussing, quit stewing, quit analyzing, quit worrying about it. Press forward with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be a good boy, be a good girl, honor your covenants, keep your commandments, and I promise you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that your steps will be guided. As you open your mouth, it will be filled. You will be in the right place at the right time, and in most instances, you'll have no idea why or how you got there. So quit worrying about it. You got the answer? Good. So there's a blatant double play going on here, depending on which audience he's talking to, I suppose. So uh, again, the lack of consistency is always troubling, and yet they want to show that Joseph Smith has a complete consistency, and this is why we find it so troubling to have faith in what the brethren are always telling us, because they see a consistency in Joseph Smith that is not there, as we understand from studying the historical parts that Boyd K. Packer didn't want us studying. And we are seeing an inconsistency in their self-proclaimed consistency in today's leadership. And so how do you know what to think, what to follow, which book to read, when to realize a leader is telling you the truth or not? You don't. That's why we have to use our reasonableness and our eyes, our nose, our mouth, our ears, unlike what Elder Bednar has taught. This is why RFM and I wanted to do this, because we don't think it's unreasonable to examine rather than just believe and gain a testimony. That was the whole point of addressing Elder Bednar. And when you see that quote from him, which I will add at RFM.org, yeah, uh, hopefully it. tomorrow and get it up, and you'll be able to hear it. The, the tacit admission is the remarkable thing because the tacit admission is if he's telling all the members of the church to quit worrying about whether what you're hearing is you or the Holy Ghost, just do what you're supposed to do. What yeah. it is telling me is that he can't tell the difference either. Yeah. If he could tell the difference, yeah. he would tell us how to tell the difference. If he's telling us, don't worry about it, it's because he can't tell the difference. He has no clue as to whether God is speaking to him or whether it's his own thoughts, but he has resolved that in his own mind, such that as long as he does what he's supposed to do, 
he's on the right track and he doesn't have to worry about identifying communication as being from an external source or from an internal source. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, it's just uh, so that's pretty much what we wanted to cover. And uh, we're we're over time, but it's OK. We haven't had a lot of people throwing eggs or tomatoes at us, which is wonderful. <laughs> well, especially so, since they're hundreds of miles away from me, at least. Yeah, there you go. So RFM, it is so much fun having you on my show. I appreciate doing that. Let's do this some more as we have time. We'll we'll find something from someone I'm sure in the future to continue addressing. So I'm sure this seems to be what it is that leaders of the church and others are trying to do is come up with arguments. Brian Hales is trying to do it. He's failing as badly as Elder yeah. Bednar. Well, maybe not quite as badly as Elder Bednar. Really, who can fail as badly as Elder Bednar? He's tops at failing. So at least he's he's good at something. And he fails with authority. <laughs> yes. And people come up with these, these crazy arguments to show the church is true. And then people get wind of them and they want to ship them out to people with questions. And we come in to help analyze and hopefully elucidate these talks. And I'm still waiting to find one that delivers on its promise. See, there's the catch that I mean that seriously, that me too. And so there is the beginning of our uncertainty and our skepticism and our doubt, because we are once again promised a delivery and it isn't delivered. It doesn't after quite do land. That, yeah. After you do that 200 times, the rest of us go, you know what? Maybe next Saturday evening or something. Not now. Right. And the very first thing you have to do to get there is the hardest thing to do. It's a tiny thing, but very hard. And you have to allow yeah, yourself listen the to space. it in general conference. Oh, well, that's hard too. But, <laughs> but the hardest thing for me to do was to allow myself space to ask the question as to whether what they're saying makes sense. Yeah. Well put. Well put. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's end on that. My dear friend, that, that, that is beautiful. So thanks everybody for showing up. We will return as soon as possible. Don't forget Wednesday night Mormonism live with this man here, along with Bill real there. They've got a great show in the planning and we will see all you guys again real soon. Have a great night. And that concludes my discussion with the backyard professor of elder David A. Bednar's two part talk, that ye may believe. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you hear at Radio Free Mormon, please take the time today to go to RadioFreeMormon.org and make a donation. $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contributions and donations keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Well, that's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.